Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding. It is the best day of the week, which is the day that we record the Focused Compounding podcast. Jeff, how's it going? How was your weekend? Uh, good. It was good. Good. Hope everyone is doing well out there. If this is the first time that you're tuning in, be sure to check out all of our work. Go to focuscompound.com to get access to investment write-ups. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. I've been tweeting like a madman lately. And check out all the content that we put out there on the internet, uh, wherever you are listening to us right now on the podcast app or Spotify, uh, be sure to leave us a rating review. But most importantly, hit that subscribe button. That is what helps spread the word. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about how to judge and do research on an industry. Um, uh, We've talked about many times how we're looking for a great company in a great industry. And you have said that you think I believe it was 50% of the return that you're going to get in the stock comes from the type of industry that it's in, of Mm -hmm. course, I mean, roughly, um, uh, you know, those numbers. So let's talk about, you know, the industry, how you typically judge industry, how do you do research on industry? So exactly like going through the investment process um, and just what your thoughts are generally. I mean, we've done obviously industry research on a bunch of different industries and sometimes we come across industries that really aren't growing. And right. I'm kind of curious to hear like your thoughts towards that and just how you judge the industry, you know, from that perspective. Um, I think the most important thing is whether the industry is durable or not. And then the product economics of it and how rational competition in the industry is. Uh, growth could be good or bad, depending on the industry. Very high growth phase in the industry where there's a lot of change are usually bad. Um, so, you know... Uh, when cars first started, as Buffett gave an example in his presentation this year, but also electric cars or something would create the same sort of problem. And so you want to avoid those sorts of periods for an industry. Um, so a big upheaval like that, where there's a lot of asset growth in the industry, lots of newcomers, things like that. Lots of like new money coming in in the industry to compete and stuff like that. Sure. You usually want something where there's kind of a dominant, um, uh, there's already an established paradigm. All right, so like already a pattern for what a successful business model looks like. Um, you usually want to, I would say, the way we invest, you would want to wait until that has been established. Um, you don't want to be betting on some of the first movers in an industry. You mm-hmm. know? And if you look at a lot of like Buffett's investments, call it railway, railroads, um, his investment in Apple, stuff like that, the industry is more, I mean, the industry, it's almost like they're in this growth phase, right? Where it's kind of like a, everyone's trying to get the like, uh, you know, winner take all or take as much market share as they possibly can. And then the industry starts to consolidate because there's probably some sort of access that went into that. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, when it's more in like a mature state, that's typically when he invests in those companies. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Um, you have said that a good, quick, easy way to find a, a durable industry or, um, you know, a durable company is to find a company that's in an industry that's basically been around for a very long time. And that's a good mm-hmm. way to go about doing it. So it's like cement has been around for, you know, 2000 plus years. You go back yeah. to like the ancient Roman times. Gambling obviously has been around for the same amount of time. Restaurants have been around, staying at inns, uh, theater, some sort of entertainment. Um, banks have been around for, you know, 700 plus years. But I mean, mm-hmm. they're like loans and obviously like money has been along, uh, around for sure. longer than that. Credit, it predates money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, fascination with animals, stuff like that is stuff that, you know, has been around for a while and is going to be around. 
mm-hmm. I would say, you know, probably for the next hundred years. And Buffett always uses this example, I think is interesting when he talks about the most popular candy bar over the past 100 years right. has been Snickers. Mm-hmm. And you could probably bet, at least with a high degree of certainty, that over the next 100 years, Snickers is at least going to be relevant in some capacity, right? Right. Um, and that's true in a lot of countries. The uh, The leading candy bar something has been the leader for a long time. And even a new one coming from outside hasn't been able to displace it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like things like banking, insurance, drugs, alcohol, uh, non-alcoholic beverages, food away from home, food at home, entertainment away from home, entertainment at home, uh, shelter, clothing, and transportation will be around um, forever in some capacity. Yeah. Right. It's just like, what is that going to be? When we say clothing, obviously, you know, we're going to wear clothing. Um, right. But, but who knows? Is it going to be uh, buckle versus... Uh, right. Branded clothing is newer. Mm-hmm. Right. And clothing as a percentage of spending is very small compared to what it used to be. So you go back 100 years, is a very big percentage of a household spending would have been on clothing. Um, well, more than 100 years. But you go back 100, 150 years, it was. Um, so if we go back... Like if we go back about 160 years or 170 years, that's a growth industry of a commodity. So it's not branded clothing, it's commodified clothing, but it's a very high growth industry. Uh, And now it's low growth and branded, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but brands are another aspect of that. How important is that? That's something that happened sort of more recently for most categories, but there would be a difference between whether the product's branded or not branded. Obviously, that's a really big difference as we got into with all the things, whether it's the beverage things or whatever, a lot of those had on-branded versions at one time. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so let's say that somebody finds a company in the industry, and then from there, is it really thinking about their position in the industry, their, I mean, market power, you define as like the most important, you know, business model, right. mental model, whatever you want to call it, which is really um, uh, the ability to raise prices with your suppliers without, you know, fear of them, um, ending their relationship with you right Mm -hmm. something along those lines so i'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts i mean so let's say you find a company that's in like let's say the beverage industry or the food industry i mean what's the process like from there uh so i would say yeah market position is the really important one i mean still when we're analyzing durability is, is this some sort of fad or something that could change or go away um regulation for some things right so um and also but other things can trade in your market. So like with cement as an example, if you're um, in a fairly landlocked area um, where transportation is more expensive by by ship, um, whether it means by barge and only by rivers that you can get to it, or if you're on a coastal thing is gonna make a big difference in terms of how much you're part of a world trade for the commodity. Mm-hmm. Same sort of thing with like gambling or something like that, right? It's gonna depend on regulation. So what are the regulations in the area and might they change? Mm-hmm. So things like that. So I'd say first is still more durability in terms of figuring out how much things will stay the same. So is there any sort of societal shifts, fads, whatever that might be causing some sort of problem? Um, or is it something that you're very sure of is not going to change over time? So cement could be very cyclical, but for the most part, you might think isn't going to change that much. Although let's say you were concerned about like um, global warming or something, then there could be things that governments might change because of the intensity of, of how much it's using in terms of stuff that might be contributing to that kind of stuff, right? In terms of the production of the commodity. So you might say, okay, what could change things? Well, it could change if there were efforts to um, uh, use less cement for that reason. 
but what else could you think of? There's not a lot you can think of, of why you would use other products instead of cement, right? Mm -hmm. So the substitution's not that likely. So, but you want to just check societal trend, things like that. So coal obviously used for a long time, but then might be used less now for societal trends that you see shifting. And that would be, you know, you could read newspaper things. So it's not like that so would surprise you. There'd be stories about it and everything and you could look into it and look into the economics of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're kind of seeing that right now with tobacco, right? They want right. to limit the amount of nicotine that is in cigarettes. Right. And I find that a very, uh, a lot of people emailed about that and asked about that. And I find that one a very difficult one to analyze, right? Because I don't know how important that is. Um, to cigarette use um and what that will ultimately do right if you re it, how you know if you reduce um nicotine content does that mean that you're going to have an increase in the amount that people are using mm -hmm. does it mean that people are going to stop using it because they're going to be used to using a certain amount and the amount of nicotine that they'll get from that will be lower and lower over time uh, a lot of things like that that's what I was thinking. I was like, okay, so now people are just going to buy two packs of cigarettes instead of one. Like, is that what it right, could look like? It's hard to see how it would play out. Yeah, it depends on how the government would implement that and also how it would be, um, how, uh, you know, it's what I talked about in that. We, we did a podcast where we talked a little bit about that. I think the lobbying efforts would be important in terms of making sure that that legislation is crafted exactly the way that they might want it because I think that could be either harmful or beneficial to uh, cigarette companies yeah. mm -hmm. and you've listed two things before so you basically said you want to look for the industry as a whole is likely to be around forever uh, and look pretty much the same forever and the company's competitive position within that industry is likely to look pretty much the same forever mm -hmm. um, so really think about like you know what industries have been around since you know the 1900s um, and then what companies and what industries have been around since, you know, the 1920s or earlier. And actually, I tweeted something out about this. And if you're watching on YouTube, you could see this. Uh, somebody gave a link to this website called Visual Capitalist. And the title was, Where are the Oldest Companies in Existence? And if you look at the oldest companies, according to this website, um, uh, you know, year, I guess the oldest ones in Japan, year 578, and it's construction and then I could just list the industries, uh, you know, going down. It's then the service industry, restaurants, uh, distillers, breweries, uh, manufacturing and production. Um, yeah. So basically, though, like kind of like some of those along the lines of what we just listed yeah. before. And we could think in the United States, for instance, I don't know which ones they have listed in the United States, but there's a few. Uh, there is one, I don't know if it's an oldest company, but the location still used and stuff. So there are some that are bars that are basically about that old, where there's been a bar, a tavern in that location for a few hundred years. Among publicly traded companies, I would guess John Wiley is the oldest, unless you count a predecessor to a Bank of New York. Um, if you count that, then maybe that's a little bit older. And the, uh, John Wiley would be very early 1800s. And then I think you have a bank from the very late 1700s. Mm -hmm. um, there's some other companies that were combined into other stuff. So occasionally a railroad bought something that had been a canal company or something that was officially created before then. But basically it is um, uh, banks and publishers and things like that that still exist. Yeah. So when you're studying an industry, let's say you are in a uh, interested in a microcap, for example, but in the industry there's like larger companies. Right. Is part of your research process going and studying those other companies to learn more about you know what they're doing, their competitive position, how yeah. they think about the industry? I'm just trying to, you know, a lot of people you know do research on the companies. They read the 10K and the 10 uh, Qs and the annual reports, but so much of you know our research process is outside of company filings. Right. And I think that's where you could really learn about, you know, 
a lot. So whether that's, you know, talking to brokers or talking to other companies or other employees, people that just work within the industry. Yeah, that's true. Uh, talking to those people. And I think a lot of times there's bigger companies, which there might be more information on, or companies in other countries and things like that that give you an idea of how this company might work. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of my understanding of some company in an industry is usually by comparing it to peers because it's easier to get information that way sometimes than to get a lot of information which you know is specific. You talked about like talking to brokers or something. If you talk to people in an industry, it's usually easier to get them to talk generally about how it works in that industry than to give you detailed information that you're sure has applies directly to this company, mm -hmm. right? So when I gave the John Wiley example, it's easier for them to give examples of um, uh, how they make decisions about what academic publishing things to subscribe to, say, a university, right? So the university library, it, it's easier to talk to that person who's in charge of that budget about what they choose to do than about Wiley specifically. But you could assume that it's the same, and they'll explain how much it is or isn't the same. You know, we talked about Breezy Eastern, which is a helicopter rescue ice company as much of that research as really talking to people who use the competitor because there were two companies in that industry that people used and for the most part they use them the same way mm -hmm. you know? um i'm kind of curious so getting back to looking for you know the great company and the great industry and so much of your return comes from the industry what does that look like from like a ten thousand foot overview i mean are you looking for if you see industry reports for example yeah. and they say this industry is projected to have a 20% K or over the next five years or grow in growth or something along those right. lines. I mean, is that what you're talking about when you say a good industry like that? No, I'm looking for the opposite. Usually um, something in the information that seems like the microeconomic situation will get better. So for instance, using the cement example, um, uh, I was reading things about from the USGS and reading annual reports each year about it. And they were talking about how the number of sites they, they describe what happens, and they say that the number of sites um, used to produce lime generally stays the same or goes down, but the size goes up of the, their capacity at each location, and that that's in part for permitting and environmental reasons for that about the barriers to entry that there are, and that that's a trend that's expected to continue. And then they had long-term data, and it looked like things were getting better since like about the 1970s that way. So an industry could be good or bad bad um, if you find the right point. And Buffett, you can see, did that with um, when he chose to get into railroads, when he chose to get into airlines, um, when he chose to get into smartphones with mm -hmm. Apple, right? Wait for a point at which you feel like there's some consolidation. Um, very much so with newspapers. So basically he would buy a newspaper, buy the leading newspaper in a two newspaper town with the assumption of becoming one newspaper town. You know, that's pretty much was his strategy. Mm -hmm. And you do really well doing that. Most towns started out with three, four, five newspapers. They all end up going down to two and most down to one. Mm -hmm. um, so the newspapers aren't inherently a good business, but they're a good business when there's only one left. And so once it's clear who the leaders are in an industry and what direction it's headed in, then, yeah, you know, you're waiting for that point that seems to make it much more attractive. What would you say is the modern version of that? Of newspapers? Yeah. I mean, just like that type of strategy that people could look for. Anything off the top of your mind? Well, there's a lot of different businesses that I'd say are winner takes all. A difficult thing is um, I think a lot of them are financed with venture capital money. And so they continue to exist even though they shouldn't. 
So, for instance, you could probably find 20 um, meal uh, kit delivery companies, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't know why, like, in terms of the economics and stuff, it doesn't really make sense. There shouldn't be that many. But someone keeps financing them. So there's a lot of categories that we could go through of, of things that I think that there should probably be one leader. Um, and there isn't. A lot of it has to do with customer acquisition cost stuff. I think the customer acquisition cost is too high unless you get shrunk down to fewer competitors. Um, and yet, because of venture capital things, I think that the customer acquisition cost is kind of high in some industries just because they keep starting up. They keep backing some companies, which gets their name out there. But yeah, there's a lot of them. A lot of things that have been starting the last 10, 15 years, you would think should end up being, you know, winner takes all or almost winner takes all. Yeah, Jeff and I, we've talked about before how it's always scary to us when we're in an industry that is, you know, VC backed. That's what a lot of your competitors are, you know, where they don't really care about turning a profit or producing free cash flow. It's just go grab market share as much as possible. And it's okay to, you know, burn through cash and stuff. And they're just the VCs. It's, that's part of the life cycle where it's not as um, important as, you know, being in a mature state, for example. Yeah. And so usually what ha has happened in the past is that that grows for a period of time. And then there's a crunch in the industry that eliminates a lot of players at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's happened less because of how maybe loose credit has been or whatever you want to say, how available venture capital stuff has been. But we could go by the industry and plenty of them were knocked out in 2000. Eight, they were locked. I mean, even things in technology stuff, there were at least two periods in the last 20 years or slightly over 20 years where there was a massive uh, reduction in the number of companies competing in that industry. Um, and it, you know, but at other times it hasn't happened. People might have expected it to happen with COVID or something like that. So we're in a fairly long period uh, where they, it's been able to get financing in a bunch of different industries. But for some industries, that's not true. You know, it depends on the, the shift. Um, there are some industries where there have been plenty of bankruptcies and things like that. Um, so I would say what you're asking about with the newspaper thing, the examples I see are mostly tech. Um, we call it technology, but what I'd really say is it's, um, it's media. It just happens that that's what media is now. But, uh, a lot of those that I can think of, um, are probably yeah there's a lot of winner takes all type things in there sure mm -hmm. interesting yeah because i don't know i mean sometimes you know you read these reports on valley investors club or whatever twitter everywhere and they always reference the industry and it's projected to have a you know a, a kager that looks favorable over the next you know whatever years and it's like my mind kind of goes the other way where i say oh okay 20 percent kager or 15 percent kager um that means that you know there's going to be a lot of competition trying to take advantage of that growth. That's just the nature of capitalism. That's how capitalism works. And we've talked about a lot. It's like with the whole TAM thing, how people, you know, kind of assume that whatever company, they're just going to own the entire market. And that's just not what is what's going to happen. Sure. So it depends on um, the economics, the product economics of it. It is um, in some industries, they might not be able to do that much harm to you. Um and so your existing customers, if you can get them signed up, you could still be able to do fine. Mostly subscription things I could think of that are difficult for someone to undo. Um, they, you know, they, it's very tied into how their work at the business, uh, you know, um, day to day, what's happening. So it would require retraining and stuff. So I think that you could have situations where it's fairly um, 
fairly fragmented. And yet there's, uh, if the different software things and stuff that, that people are using could be pretty small in terms of how much they have of the addressable market, but people still use it. That's for sure. Um, the more, the ones that are more like, um, winner takes all right, tend to be things that are more, either there's a consumer aspect to it, or there's very low switching costs, right? As opposed to something like if you happen to have a accounting software that some companies used, um, and someone else came along with better stuff and ended up having 10 times more subscribers than you did, it might still take a while for people to switch away from you. Um, that could be very possible because of how integrated it would be to everything that they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, no, I just, it's, it's always a, an interesting topic. And I think we kind of think about it a little bit differently. But that's also because we're, we're approaching it from the standpoint of wanting to hold companies for, you know, 10 plus years. I think so, yeah. And, but I mean, that could also is an argument that people could have that if you're willing to do that, then you're willing to have a very, um, you're willing to buy into things that won't make money for a long time. It's justified if you know that eventually they'll have a big position in an industry that's very large. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that we tend to be more pessimistic on that than most people. Uh, I, don't i'm not willing to go as far out in years in terms of what they'll make um in many cases it could be because of increasing competition but other times it's just because unless the product economics are that great it doesn't really make sense um so it makes sense in some industries that have very very strong product economics for the leaders right so if you have um you know like stock exchanges um some soft drink companies we've talked before about that about like celsius or whatever looking at those but there it's a smaller group of things than people might think it's not as many um leaders in their in their industry that actually end up to have such high operating margins and such high customer retention um if you had both of those if you had really high free cash flow um conversion of very very high operating margins with very high retention rates then you could have a really high price to sales ratio but my biggest problem with most the companies that we talk about is the price to sales ratio is just too high. It's not even an issue of P you don't have to be earning money today, but their price versus revenue is too high right now. And that's because most companies can't have 40% and uh, you know, operating margins and nearly hundred percent retention ratios. I just feel like um, the economics that a lot of people are modeling out when looking at a company uh, seem to be a lot like that amongst like a Facebook or something. And they're very good, but they're very rare. Mm-hmm. So there's not that many companies that actually look like that, even though there's lots of companies that are in some sort of emerging technology thing. How would you think about the future of gambling, for example, right? And legalized sports betting and, you know, all the I mean, that, lobbying behind everything that's going on currently. Gambling is like tobacco. I mean, it's a government thing. It's what the government chooses to let you do and not do. And that creates the advantage. Mm-hmm. I don't think tobacco would be some amazing business if it hadn't over time been more and more restricted by the government. I don't think gambling would be either. Um, there would be people drawn into the industry, but instead they can't be because of the because of laws. So it's sort of a legalized monopoly situation. It's kind of a better situation than you get with like utilities, um, which are usually legalized in a way that's not that attractive for the people operating them. Um, um, so it's like restaurants, right? So if you were to yeah. analyze restaurants, if you were to look at a restaurant stock and you wanted to analyze mm-hmm. the restaurant industry, I mean, would you be focused on, I mean, so labor, we've talked about this a lot, right? right? Labor is going to be an issue for restaurants. Mm-hmm. I think you'd speak to anybody that's involved with restaurants and that's what they talk about. Um, 
you know, what are some other things that you would think about from like a macro industry perspective? Yeah, the big thing I'd say from a macro perspective is uh, food away from home versus food at home. But it's held up pretty well. Um, so from an economic perspective, rationally, I think it's held up much better than I would have expected. What do you uh, mean? Like food, food away from home. I think food away from home is very unattractively priced versus food at home. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think people pay a lot for convenience and things like that. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's holding up surprisingly well, considering how I think unattractive it is, uh, in terms of pricing, mm-hmm. uh, because of how it's so much cheaper to cook at home. Yeah, and it hasn't always been that case. In most times at which food away from home has taken a lot of share from food at home, the two have been more uh, closely priced. Mm-hmm. And yet the last, going before COVID, the last few years before COVID, last five years or so, there was very little inflation in um, supermarkets. Very little. And it, actually at most periods, there's more inflation there that gives more protection to food away from home, you know, being able to stay, you know, not getting way too out of line competitively. Um, and so potentially that's a big deal, uh, in the long run is like if labor costs are, are high and stuff like that, then, you know, food away from home can be kind of expensive, um, versus food at home. Yeah. If you're watching on YouTube right now, I have a chart that's from 1987 to 2017 and food away from home is above food at home now. And I'm, I'm willing to bet if you extrapolate this chart out, I couldn't find it uh, to 2021 or 2020, mm-hmm. that it's probably even more dramatic. And it's interesting. I mean, um, we've talked about on the podcast before, but you know, ARC's CEO, I mean, the, the restaurant industry is, is so competitive. And uh, ARC restaurant CEO, he was talking about once that, you know, like in New York specifically, mm-hmm. if you close down a restaurant, the problem with that is another restaurant is going to take its place. Right. And that's because it's so many people's dream to, you know, have a restaurant, especially in New York City, and, um, you know, be in business like that. So it's just a very competitive industry. But no, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to hear your perspective on that and how food away from home has really crossed uh, food at home. And I wonder why that is. I mean, do you think that goes back to, so we were talking about earlier about the way that people spend their money, right? So it's like, in more modern times, people spend less on clothing than they have in the past. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's just it's a societal shift that has happened like that, which allows or I guess influences people to want to eat more away from home as opposed to eating at home? It's unclear. Um, I'm not sure what the entire answer is. Some of it is demographic, which we can figure out. So a big part of what you're seeing in that period there, I think, is demographic, both in terms of an age shift and a gender shift in terms of workforce at the beginning of the period versus the end there. And I don't think that if you limited it to um, males of the same age, how much they were consuming versus it, you would have as big a difference for some of it. Um, So you've had some demographic shifts which have contributed to it. A lot of it's probably due to time of day shifting to where it's not um if we limited it just to like comparing dinner food at home versus food away from home i don't think the difference would be as big as when you start looking at other things like breakfast with more thing with more um companies filling out more of the day mm-hmm. um i think that that factor in factors in more um but i it's hard to know the answer to that um it is however that's a pretty benign period in terms of minimum wage. And so that is the big question. It, I mean, you would think that minimum wage increases would be most problematic for restaurants um, and just food, uh, food away from home in general. 
anything that 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 raising the minimum wage in places would tend to drive business to supermarkets mm-hmm. would be what you would think because they can have a lower labor component. Um, also, you know, more of them are unionized and stuff. And um, I would think that that would be a big concern. You know, if I was analyzing uh, restaurants and things like that, it would be something I would think about. But I would offset that fact with it has been several years that I would have expected more problems for restaurant sales than they actually experienced. And I'm not sure why that was. So I don't know the answer. I would have expected better for supermarkets than ended up happening. And it wasn't as good as I would have thought. So I'm sure that looking back five years ago or three years ago or something, I would have expected more of a shift towards supermarkets and away from restaurants than actually happened. But there must be some degree of insensitivity. We're talking about very low inflation. Um, So the price changes may not have been big, but I just think relatively uh, you can't go forever with making a possible substitute more and more cost uh, uh, attractive versus something that could be substituted for at some point there is a substitute. Um, you know, at some point there is a choice that people can make to eat and then go do some entertainment thing, then eat while they're at the entertainment venue, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. It has to be some amount of shifting due to that. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, make sure you hit that subscribe button uh, wherever you are watching or listening to this. Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. And of course, if you want to get access to Jeff's write-ups, go to FocusCompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.